From the HBA Podcast Studio in New York City, welcome to The Medium Rules. I'm Alan Baldishan. Joining me today in the HBA Podcast Studio are James Bosworth and Aliyah Ahmed Yahya, co-founders of the Spyglass Collective. What, what, when we use the term influencer, what do we mean? Somebody that has a strong point of view and tells a really important and authentic story. Why the micro-influencer? Why the rise of the micro-influencer? I'm never going to be Beyonce, but I might be this girl I follow on Instagram who also has two kids who looks cute every day. In a way, we've lost the edit. We've lost the editor. We've lost the curation. So people are really looking for somebody to help curate. So for brands, especially these like large retail companies, partnering with influencers has become their new method of attracting that customer so it feels holistic it feels lifestyle i mean that's what people are buying into they're buying your shirt because they like you soul angeles by the way that's right i was about to say (laughs) (laughs) kim kardashian was recently featured on the cover of business of fashion magazine with the headline the age of influence truer and i put that in quotes truer words may never have appeared in print Indeed, the influencer economy on Instagram alone is worth an estimated $1 billion and rising with a bullet. While deals with the top influencers can be worth millions of dollars, there's a huge sweet spot for so-called micro-influencers, loosely defined as as, uh, influencers having between 10,000 and 100,000 followers. A widely read article on Medium's The Startup Blog unabashedly asserts that that the micro-influencer marketing is the game in 2018. In fact, as we'll learn, micro-influencers are in some ways more valuable to brands in that they tend to have a more loyal and engaged follower community. Joining me today in the HBA podcast studio are James Bosworth and Aliyah Ahmed Yahya, co-founders of the Spyglass Collective. Spyglass is a collective of experts in marketing, content, and business development, working with design and experience-centric brands on marketing, content, and strategy. Aliyah is also a fashion influencer herself, under her handle, The Style Scout, with 15,000 Instagram followers. James and Aliyah are here in studio today to help us understand the key drivers of the micro-influencer economy. Looking forward to a very interesting discussion today on a topic that interacts with virtually all of us, but one that few people outside of the industry understand. So with that, let's get started. James and Aliyah, thank you so much for coming in today and looking forward to a great conversation. Hi, Alan. We're so happy to be here. Thank you for having us, Alan. It's a pleasure. Um, so first off, let's talk about Spyglass Collective. And uh, I'd be interested in hearing your guys' sort of elevator pitch. Tell me about your business. Sure. Uh, I think our, our tagline says most of it, anyway. It's uh, vision magnified. And so any of our customers come to us. We really want to integrate with what their vision is. And we always say, you know, 10% further. You know, can we get them to go 10% further? Can we get them to engage 10% further? And, you know, we want to take their original vision and magnify it. So that's why we named the company Spyglass. Okay. I think it's interesting because people say that we have clients, you know, kind of all across the map. Jamie's background is in sports media and tech. Mine is in fashion and retail. But they all, you know, fit together and there's a common thread that everybody today is looking to reach their customer in an innovative way and have a connection with that person. So largely what we do is tell a great story that is very authentic and connects in the channels that customers are resonating with today. So are you guys, so are your clients brands? Are your clients, who are you connecting to whom? Well, we have uh, celebrity clients. Okay. So we have uh, a very well-known celebrity client that came to us, partnered with our company to um, help them essentially um, uh, execute on the vision of a new brand. Okay. Then we, all, we, we go all the way from celebrity fashion lifestyle all the way to a, fin- a new digital financial service company called Alchemy Capital okay. uh, out of Boston. Uh, really bright young guys, two co-founders, uh, Reese and Philip up in Boston. These guys are brilliant, and they decided that they're going to start a hedge fund financial service company and uh, a couple different uh, and uh, a couple different funds, just focused on the digital ecosystem. Okay. Okay. So rather than saying, "Hey, how can we invest in many different kinds of companies?" They said, "Look, the entire landscape of the economy is changing. Let's figure out a way 
to tap into that. And you guys are doing content marketing for them, basically. Con well, we're actually partners. Okay. Content marketers, as well as um, we're we're full partners in that in that business. Okay. Most of the businesses that we go into, um, we take equity stakes in those companies. So you're as aligned. Hundred well. percent. Right. Okay. I think the other important thing that kind of connects both of us is we, in our past lives, we've both worked in-house at brands, we've both been entrepreneurs and started our own companies, but we've always been that one disruptive person in the group that thinks a little bit differently, that takes risks and tries new things. And regardless what our clients come to us for, it always grows tentacles. So we end up on the strategy side, on the business side, on in, in Jamie's world, the fundraising, the business development, the right. capital side. So they're tapping into everything you guys bring to the table. Well, right. Alan, like yeah. you said in the beginning, you know, you talk about, it used to be you were a media expert, right? And you're either in advertising, marketing, you know, and you kind of like were off in the corner. The sales guys did one thing. Now everyone, including individuals, have to be media experts. Let me ask you a question. Uh, you, we're talking a lot about what you guys bring to the table. Give me a little bit of a sense of, of, of just the highlights of your background mm -hmm. and, and James, your background, just in terms of, you know, where you've been, what you've done, how you got to, to sort of this stage in your career where you, where you, where you kind of have this expertise. Sure. I'm happy to. To, to jump in here, I'll give you my Reader's Digest because yeah. it is many, many chapters. Of there's my dots my along the Via Dolorosa <laughs> of <laughs> so, New York so City. <laughs> so I was born in Wisconsin as the oldest of seven kids. Um, no, that is actually true. Go Badgers, true. I guess. Yeah, it is Go Badgers, um, for better or for worse. But, I'm not one for the record, <laughs> but I have many, many friends who are addicts. Uh, I moved here right after college. I knew no one. It is very much the, the New York story. Uh, back in the day, pounding the pavement, looking for a job, majored in creative advertising and journalism. And I thought I was going to be shooting hoops at an ad agency in my pajamas, like coming up with the next big idea. I think I watched one too many movies back 30 something back episodes, maybe. 100%. Yeah. Um, I ended up with my first job at Vanity Fair magazine as the fashion assistant. And it's funny because now, you know, deeply rooted in the fashion community, people always ask, like, oh, did you grow up sketching? Like, did you want to be in fashion? And it really was never on my radar. And I learned everything about fashion from my first boss, who was the fashion director of Vanity Fair. And it was kind of like not even a dip of, you know, dip your toe into the pool. It was like tie concrete to your feet and drop you into the deep end and see if you can swim, um, which is the best way to learn. And I think, sure. you know, a lot of people aren't trained like that anymore. So um, it really gave me a basis of seeing fashion as a business. And that came from Elizabeth. Um, I went on to work at multiple other fashion magazines, um, Glamour, Elle, I started my own digital company in 2006, which was luxury jewelry, sold online, which ironically, as an editor, I would meet so many luxury jewelry designers that sold at Barney's and Bergdorf's and you know, huge uh, retail outlets, but they had no e-com presence back in the day. And that seems crazy yes. now saying that. Yes. But my idea was you could open up your market to so many other people that would love your product if you had a place to do it. So I curated multiple designers. I think I had 15 top designers um, that sold at Barney's and Bergdorf's, and it was a one-man band. Uh, I did PR, marketing, <laughs> I did everything for it, curation, um, pitched the designers, and it was, you know, the best foray into entrepreneurship that I ever could have had. But it was right before 2008, before the crash. I was trying to find an investor. It just wasn't going to happen. Right. So You also I, won a big award. Why don't you talk about that? I, <laughs> <laughs> it was Time Magazine's Fashion Website of the Year in 2007. Oh, amazing. So it was yeah. just really innovative. And I think this goes through the thread of how Jamie and I came together. We have always been that person that is like done something a little bit different. And at the time, everyone else is like, you're crazy. And then five years later, people are like, what happened to your website? That would really work right now. <laughs> you know? I'm like, thanks. Someday I'll catch up with myself yes. and just yes. do it in the, yes. in the right moment. Yes. Um, but anyway, so I went on to work at Elle. I did a lot. You're of not going to stop and tell me you were into crypto <laughs> no. in 2011. <laughs> Not to that extent. Uh, not to that extent. Okay. Um, I did a lot of TV. I launched L.com's blog. Again, one of those situations where in media back in the day, they were like, we have this website. And it was like the best. An afterthought. Now it's basically job. their entire business. Exactly. Really, it exactly. has to be as we know. Yeah. So it was the wild, wild west of media back then. You know, we did a lot of experimentation. I started video series. You know, there was very little hands in that space because print was king. 
So I got to do a lot of creative things and really, you know, develop my skill set as a stylist, as a journalist, as an entrepreneur, as an influencer, as a fashion director. And I left uh, magazines and went to Ann Taylor Loft in 2008. And again, another moment where everyone in fashion was like, you're leaving Elle to go to Ann Taylor? Why? And now I can tell you I get probably two to three LinkedIn messages a week from people looking to leave magazines and media asking how I made the transition. Interesting. Yeah, the world has changed in yeah, just such a short people period want to get of time. Out of magazine, the magazine world. Right. Yeah. And that ties back to this conversation yeah. too. You know, I think building your own personal brand is so important because it's the only thing you can really fall back on yes. today. You know, even if you have a great job, there's no job security in any company um, in in the world right now. And that's sort of how we started Spyglass too, was really responding to that trend of big companies really downsizing all of the, you know, C-level and SVP roles they had and really, you know, centralizing one person to manage multiple disciplines and looking outward for niche expertise as they need it. Well, I think the other, the other, without meaning to, the other thing that's going on there is it's very difficult for organizations to keep up with the technology, the trends, influencers, who's right. trending, who's et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So, you know, having you guys, I would think, be full time making sure that you're able to leverage content, assets, influencer, influencers, trends is a huge, you know, huge added value. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I was at Ann Taylor for six years. I left. I was chief style director, and I could not get out of those four walls. Right. There's so much happening every yes. day that the reason they bring you in is because you're this outward influencer who's forward thinking, and then you're like, I have no access to inspiration. I don't get to see yeah. what's going on. I yeah. come in when it's dark. I leave when it's dark. So I agree that businesses really need those people that are outside of those four walls that are in touch every day because it's happening yeah, so like wild quickly. cards, really. Right, hundred um, percent. So that was not a that's not a short story. Short story long. <laughs> I also launched CBS's first style podcast after I left Ann Taylor. I started the Style Scout, um, which really was an influential brand to speak to the style-driven woman. And from that, a consultancy just organically grew because I had brands coming to me saying, "Hey, you talk to this woman every day. I'm trying to reach her. Can you help us on the strategy side, on the sales side, on the style side?" Um, so. That's what I was doing when, when Jamie came along, and I'll let him speak for himself, <laughs> but he was doing similar things, and we have force multiplied. I was um, on the corner with like a tin cup, and she <laughs> saw me and felt bad for true. me. I was like a, like a stray dog. I might have seen you too, and just walked right by. <laughs> <laughs> Most people did. <laughs> um, my background is very similar to Aaliyah's. I was extremely passionate as a kid about golf. I wasn't athletic enough really to play basketball or football or a tall, skinny Irish kid from West Orange, New Jersey. So figured uh, golf was a good place to, to start. I was really passionate about it and got r really, really hooked on it. And so um, I would go drive, you know, take my bike and drive to different towns to find these magazines, Golf World from Britain, Golf Digest, Golf Magazine when they first came out, Golf Week. And I started digesting all this information because I was just so passionate about something that I felt like, you know, I might have a place in and uh, you know my parents and my grandmother everyone was like why do you waste all your time with golf why do you waste all your time with golf and I wound I was lucky enough for uh, to get a, a division one scholarship to Seton Hall University to play golf there and you know as I continued to be uh, not the best athletic player I was not the number one player um, I was the most passionate about the sport and I really did a ton of research on equipment and how I could get better and how I could compete with people that were better than me. And everyone thought all this information was just a waste of time until I got hired by Pebble Beach Golf Links to be their youngest assistant pro ever. That's amazing. And I What got, a beautiful spot. Oh too, my God, it's, oh go my it's gorgeous. So going from literally Hoboken and West Orange, New Jersey mm -hmm. to the day after graduation, I'm on the Monterey Peninsula in Pebble Beach. and. You know, that's when I realized um, quickly that, A, I'm a fish out of water. I'm a New Jersey kid in, in Northern California, one of the most beautiful places in the world. And my boss there, R.J. Harper, you know, was just the most incredible, brilliant guy in the world. Hospitality guy from Nashville, earned his way up from being a, a marshal um, all the way to being vice president of Pebble Beach and a part, part owner. Wow. Um, he took me under his wing. And, um, you know, that's really where I learned um, the... Uh, value of mentorship and really just listening and being open and being coachable where he took me from you know relatively shy kid from new jersey really insecure 
to, um, you know, being one of the faces of Pebble Beach, which to me was always a dream. And from there, I, uh, I liked a little company that was uh, selling some putters in the shop. I called them up out of the blue, and um, it was a company called Odyssey Golf. Um, they're now a number one market share. They usually have over 40% market share. I started off with them when they were doing about $3 million in sales. Um, was very fortunate to get promoted by a boss, a guy named Jim Grunberg. I was 23 years old. At 24, he made me national sales manager. Um, most, I had 40 employees that were mostly 55 years old. Once again, you kind of look inward and you just, you're trying to learn from people rather than tell them what to do. You learn from them and then spit, spit back best practices. Um, from there, we got bought by Callaway Golf. Eli Callaway, one of the best entrepreneurs in the history of America. He had, you know, sold his winery to Hiram Walker, worked at Burlington Industries, was the youngest quartermaster in the U.S. Army, and he was another mentor. And he was one of those guys that was just very plain spoken, where I've kind of taken a lot of inspiration by. You know, don't get too complicated. Really just, you know, he would tell me all the time, you know, you just keep doing what you're doing. You sell as much stuff as you can every day and make people happy. And that'll take care of your bonus. <laughs> okay. You know, so I, I had those I had those types of bosses early on in my career. I started my own agency. I represented 15 professional athletes um, at one point in time, mostly golfers, and then um, sold that company, and then moved to um, uh, m- moved to uh, a digital marketing business, which I started called Back Nine Network, which wound up with three million unique visitors a month. And from there, um, wound up in the media space. Let's take a crack at this. Let, what, what, when we use the term influencer, what do we mean? What, who is an influencer? You know, what attributes do they have? How do you think about that? If, if, both, both for yourself mm-hmm. and then when you're working with brands to try and you know, organize and think about campaigns. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the way I would describe an influencer is somebody that has a strong point of view and tells a really important and authentic story that shares their either passion or ideas with a group of people that really trust that person. So that can cross many different industries. Um, You know, for my own brand, it's so funny to think of yourself as like, I'm an influencer. I think it's not, and I don't think most influencers think of themselves as influencers, to be fair. I think they think of themselves as being either editors or journalists or um, they think of themselves as, it's not a hobby, it's actually a way of being and they're sharing their life with a community of people and now we have platforms like Instagram and Twitter and all the social media platforms that allow you to share that with people. Um, but there are a lot of people that did it way before there was money involved in it too, you know, and if you think about an influencer on the most basic level before social media, there was always that group in every group of, or always that person in every group of friends that you would ask for a certain thing, like, oh, you're the food person, like, where should I eat? Or you travel a lot, where should I go travel? Or you always look great, I need help putting myself together. So there was always that person, and then we can all think of our social circles, like who you would ask for certain things. And now we just have more capacity to ask, in air quotes, people we don't know that have a lot more experience or expertise in that area that we feel like I call it age of the attractive stranger. Like, I kind of like you. You're kind of like me. You're like five steps more elevated than I am or five steps further than I want to be. So if I go down your path and do what you're doing, then maybe I can get there. And it feels much more attainable than looking at a celebrity who's telling me something because I'm like, well, I'm never going to be Beyonce. But I might be this girl I follow on Instagram who also has two kids who looks cute every day, who has her hair a certain way, who went to Rome with her husband, you know? I think that's a great, what I kind of take away from that is this sense of a, of, of trusted expert or, you know, some point of view that, right. that, that, that is legitimate, that's relevant. Um, an authentic, an, an authentic point of view. How do you get, how do you get to that magical, let's say 10,000 followers? How do you build that up? How do you, how do you sort of go from here to there? What's that journey I think first like? of all, it's like an expertise, right? Yeah. Or a point of view that's so different that it attracts some people originally. Yeah. So it, anyone could, I mean, there's plenty of ways to buy followers, right? But they're not going to be engaged. 
Okay. And so that's an inauthentic way to do things. And, and not interesting for the brand because they can all. obviously measure that very easily. Right. Yeah. yeah. And here, go right ahead. No, I was just to say that to Alan's point, there are metrics today. Like when Instagram first started, people were buying followers right. left and right and nobody could tell. And now there's so many apps and plugins that really can monitor you know, down to the minute when someone liked it, who liked it, where they live, what their household income is, which in a way has made it amazing for brands looking to advertise on social media because you can target somebody down to, you know, what they ate for lunch, basically. Yeah, I mean, you, you can really get, you can sort of group together images, what you, the visual that you like. Right, combined exactly. Combined with hashtags, combined with engagement, combined with geography, combined with... Right. It's uh, the, the ability to slice and dice those analytics is, is amazing. The, 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 the ROI from when I used to sit at my seat at Callaway and running a brand and a budget, okay, the influencer market was really the paid professional endorsement. Yeah, right? Whether that was it. 100%. Yeah. That was it. And you wanted to go... So wait, so just sure. to be clear for the audience, the point of entry was you need to be famous. Right. And you need to be either an athlete, a musician, a singer. So you had to be in the 1% of the world to be an influencer. Yeah, essentially the rich got richer. Yeah. You know, in, in terms, and the point of view was very limited to that group of people. So you might have somebody that's very successful in their sport, but they're not a very good spokesperson. They don't have a point of view. Now, now brands will look at, and it was also, remember, when, when digital first came out, digital was like a throw-in. It was like you hired like the young guy, cousin, niece, whatever. That, that Really, that's what, that's what was going on. They even know at, how to work the internet. Even, even at, right, 100%. Like they know how to turn on a computer. They're in charge. Now when brands start, you start authentically from the digital platform because it's the most effective. There's back in the day, not too long ago, let's say 10 years ago, you would do a buy based upon, you'd start maybe at network, you would then go to large print, then you go to cable, okay? I couldn't imagine that conversation today. So a lot of the relevant conversations that happened 10 years ago are not relevant at all. So these brands had to do a giant about face and to say, we need to be relevant. I mean, you see the decline of print. You see the, I mean, digital is everywhere. And that's what we try to say to everyone. Everyone is their own digital brand. Whether you like it or not, in today's you day and age, business. you are a multimedia business. Let, let me jump in and say then why the micro-influencer? Why the rise of the micro-influencer? And within that... Um, as a micro-influencer, how do you leverage this kind of democratization, if you will, mm -hmm. of influence mm -hmm. um, to do interesting things that might be innovative, that might be, you know, monetizable for you? So backing up, sure. you know, do you want me to be, because, because I think what we've been talking about, you could, you could say sort of covers the entire spectrum of influencers from the Kardashian. Right. Right. What, what's going on? with this micro-influencer kind of explosion that we've seen over the last couple well, of years. The micro-influencer typically has a higher engagement value. So th that's why it becomes a more efficient um, means to communicate why a, do you a brand's think that message. Is? I just, well, you no, can go no, ahead. No, go, no, go. Go. I just think it's because um, they, they come across more authentic and it seems more intimate, the relationship, because it's not two million people's like celebrities or a hundred million a hundred million of Taylor Swift, yeah. agreed and and I think that Taylor Swift does a great job in her messaging it, whether it's coming from her or not to sound like it's exactly coming from her she does a wonderful job well, I think but, you bring up a great sure. point most celebrities have an agency that they hire that does all of their social so you think you're following Taylor Swift you think you're talking to Taylor Swift it's somebody that works at a huge agency in New York City. Yeah, but like, let me ask you this, like, Leah. Do you, do you feel, in terms of your community of followers that yeah. you've spent years building up, Yeah. right? I mean, do you describe your feeling of connection to those people, I guess, to sure. those people that you interact with kind of all the time on, on, on social media? Yeah, it, you know what? It's interesting because you have people that write to you and they tell you personal stories and I don't know these people. I don't know them personally. Um, so it's interesting when you get to a place where everyone that's following you is your family and friends and people you know, and then suddenly it's this like out, like the circle's growing and people are writing to you and telling that, telling you that you, especially I did my podcast, 
um, the focus was really giving women access to this amazing network of people that I had access to that I felt like growing up in Wisconsin, I wasn't born in a fashion family. Um, people along the way have, you know, on photo shoots have helped me figure out how to do my hair, how to do my makeup, what I should dress like, introduce me to other people. Oh my God, like my friend threw this party, you should make that. And so I felt like I got all these tips along the way of like this like very big group of mentors that are very influential in what they do in beauty and home and fashion. And I was able to interview them and in just like we are talking right now, like we're having a cup of coffee at the table together and the audience is sitting here with us and it was intimate and so it's what Jamie was saying like it was intimate and they feel like they know me and I get these stories and like people DM me like you changed my life and I was like it's a lot of responsibility number one because I'm like oh like anything I say somebody is listening and they trust me and they trust me based on the fact that things that I've recommended to them in the past they've done and they've seen success with and I think that's how influencers authentically grow online is they're sharing not only their point of view but the best piece of information that I've read recently about how to do your Instagram right if you want to grow a business as an influencer is it's not about you it's about your audience so who's your audience That's a great and what are you doing every day on your Instagram that benefits them yeah. versus taking a picture of me and being like, hey, good morning, Look happy how cool Monday, right. <laughs> like, yeah. versus, hey, did you know you could wear black and navy together? It could be the same photo, but the messaging is Can different. you wear black and navy together? Yes, you can, and okay. you should, Alan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, 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 the voyeuristic nature gets old, I think. Yes, For, I think that's what I, it, I think yeah. that, that wears on people. Yeah. They're like, okay, yeah. cool. I love that. I love that insight, Aliyah. What, you, what we're talking about right now, which is just g- give people something useful, easy, friendly, high-low, which is kind of your right. vibe a little bit, right. I guess I would say. Um, and I, I interrupted you, Jamie. I think that's this is a great insight. Here. No, not at all, Alan. I think that there's just, you know, you look at, I think when social media first started, it was like, oh my God, I get to watch Tom Brady. Like, all these wow wow i'm, I'm a voyeur right. i get into, to see right. into his life okay i get to go in his house right people couldn't which believe. maybe that still exists online but that's not what i think what you're yeah. going, yeah. that's not what we're talking about no. yeah the micro influencer um actually um i think enhances enhances your life in some way so it's part education you know it's it's these micro influencers it's like nothing like better than like a great boss who's an expert in something right mm-hmm. or a friend so They've expanded that. So now you ha- you follow these five, 10 people that you really love and they're adding to your life on a daily basis. I mean, if you look at- And they respond know, to you. Well, the average person is checking their phone 375 times a day. Yeah. Crazy. That's, yeah. The right average now. person. So if, if I'm sure if we slide that scale down in terms of age group, okay, it's going to go a lot higher. Yeah. So, so if, if I try to say from a macro perspective on a lot of these companies, I say, okay- 15 years ago, okay, the average time spent looking at articles on, on a phone was negligible. Now you have, on average, people spending four to five to six hours a day. Okay? So, so in a lot of places, that's a lot more than TV. TV used to rule the world. Okay? Now it's what's floating around your pocket. Yeah. Yeah. So... Yeah, and I also think when we talk about micro-influencers and going back to your original question of like, how did this happen? Why is it important? People that have 10,000 followers, brands used to go for the biggest number. They're like, get me the, <laughs> let's let's get the influencer that has the highest following. That's not necessarily the right path. Um, micro-influencers actually ha- sometimes have a lot more power at lower numbers because as Jamie said, there's higher engagement, but also if you just think about how much the world has changed in the past five years, we've been talking about in this conversation with media, technology, the way we live, the way we interact. Um, as an average person, finding information has become actually a lot more challenging with so many options. And when you Google something, you get 400 pages of responses. In a way, we've lost the edit, we've lost the editor, we've lost the curation. So people are really looking for somebody to help curate. If you're not a fashion editor, you don't have eight hours a day to look through every blog and magazine and website and street style to figure out like what should I be wearing. You just want somebody that you like their style that you trust to tell you. 
If you look and at- that's literally what micro-influencers do every day. As Jamie said, they right. add value to your life. It's somebody you trust. It's an easy editor that you think would be your friend that you can ask a question to and they're probably going to respond to. Yeah, that- so you have an intimate relationship with somebody you've never met. It's, and brand, brands, brands are dying for that because yes. they, because of the trust factor, because why? why yeah, because why? of the trust. So I'll give you an example. Yeah. There's a blogger, um, her blog's called Something Navy. She's 30 years old. She has 1.1 million followers. She just did a partnership with Nordstrom. She did a small collection with them. On the first day, they did $4 million in sales. Wow. That's insane. Yes. So for brands, especially these like large retail companies that are trying so hard to turn the ship around with what's happening in retail, J. Crew, Macy's, Nordstrom, partnering with influencers has become their new method of attracting that customer again by trading off some some equity of this person and getting the cool factor back, but also having a new distribution channel that they don't have access to because the average person is not responding as much to print advertising, outdoor, digital anymore, but they are on Instagram every day. In fact, I just read a stat that 72% of Instagram followers are in, their purchasing decisions are influenced by their feed. 72%. And when you think about that is, it, that's insane, right? Yeah. It, it is the new marketing. I mean, we have been advising all of our clients to shift into um, Facebook and Instagram advertising mostly because of how you can target, like you were saying earlier. So if you flip that equation and think about 72% are influenced by their feed, well, nine out of 10 things that come to me sponsored in my feed are things I'm already looking for, I'm already interested in. I buy so many things off my sponsored feed and I'm not the only person I've had this conversation with so many people. They know you so well. There's so much data available about all of us that from a brand's perspective, it's like a gold mine to be able to get that narrow. So why would you do an out-of-home billboard where you're like, who knows who's going to pass by here? I mean, I know like on average how many bodies will pass by, but also to the, the course of the customer journey to actually take an action means you have to remember it. On average, people have to see something six to eight times before it actually resonates with them. Then they have to go home, they have to Google it, they have to go on the website, they have to buy it. That's so many steps. When you're on Instagram, it's this instant gratification of, oh my God, yes, I love that, I want it, I click here, I buy it in two seconds. Let me ask you guys uh, a question about how what a campaign would look like and and how you guys are innovating. And, and may, maybe talk about your your sort of style hack series that you did with Harper's Bazaar. Um, from, from sort of bookend to bookend. Sure. You know, wh- who are all the players? How do they all fit in? Um, how... Uh, how are you guys thinking about, you know, innovating uh, with brands and doing things differently? Sure. So I think there's a couple major uh, ways that brands partner with influencers now. There's actually full influencer agencies. There's an agency called Social Native that all they do is partner with micro influencers around the country, and brands come to them, and brands pay. I'm gonna throw it out there. Twenty-five grand, let's say. Twenty-five grand gets you 100 posts on micro-influencer websites and you gift them product. So major brands like you know Nike had just did a campaign with them. If they're launching a product, they might partner with Social Native and say, okay, here's 100 sneakers. I want women who have one kid who live in tertiary cities who why, why does the like, Why does the brand need the agency in there, Leo? I mean, in other words, they can, they can go on any number of these social tech platforms yep. that have the analytics or did until relatively recently on uh, Facebook and, and Instagram right. kind of cut off their fire hose. But putting putting that right. to the side for a second, yeah. what what role does the agency play? Do they run the campaign? Because the brands can find the influencers logistics. on their own. Okay. It's, it's usually logistics. I mean, when you're talking about a scale of reaching out to 100 people, that's a full-time job for somebody in-house. Okay. One, to find the right people, to vet them, to do all the back-and-forth outreach, to send them product, to get the images back, to do to the get editing. The agreement signed yeah, so basically they've created an easy platform where they have all of these influencers. They basically put an RFP out to you know 10,000 influencers that fit the bill of what the brand's looking for. Like, you know, it's all digital. A hundred of them sign up. Okay. Exactly. And then they upload their images there. Nike can go right on their platform, look at all the images, download them, take them when they need them. So it's a, it's an easier, it's a one-stop shop. Bigger companies look for efficiencies because they can, they, they have the capital to do it. Smaller companies will do it more hand-to-hand combat. Yeah. So that's just the way it kind of goes. Yeah. Um, so 
That's the first way, right? Is leveraging an influencer to wear your product, to do a post on their feed, get access to their audience. Um, we're thinking about it in a little bit of a larger perspective from a content perspective. Um, video and content are huge on social media right now. The engagement is much higher on yes. video. Yes. So, um, you know. We, we have found that, actually, right. just in our yep. content marketing here at HPA. You know, yeah. our clips are any, any video. Right. Does great. Well, I, right. I, I think that comes down to one of the basic tenets that we try to let our clients know is that human beings, even as we're little kids, like we talked yesterday morning uh, in the pre, they look to other human beings for cues. Yeah, that's what yeah. they look for. I mean, yeah. your, your whole life is staring at other human beings. So I think that video is so much more impactful. You know, you could listen to this and you paint a picture in your head, but you really want to see what do the people look like? How are they acting? Are they comfortable? Are they nice? Are they good people? You can't really tell that just through a voice. Yeah. Or a still photograph. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. And I, I think so. One of the ways that we're thinking about it is just leveraging, you know, the influential space that I have with my audience in partnership with Hurston Harper's Bazaar. We did a three-part design series this summer called Design Girlfriend, where <laughs> Jamie was uh, kind enough to let me loose in his Connecticut home, and we turned a traditional living room into a polo bar-inspired putting green room. I actually did have to cut two holes in a wood floor. <laughs> Painful. Oh, my God. Yeah, How we, did you get through that, Jamie? We had a lot of people that were dialing in, and they were they were just like, are That's you just kidding? Or what, what are you doing? And I'm like, well, you can't actually into a hole did, let me ask you this yeah. key question when the ball dropped in the hole did it have that same sound same sound yeah. on we, we actually <laughs> we, whatever that i can't automatically it, it, it does it has a great has a great echoing, a sound. echoing sound yeah. and what we had to do in order to recreate the outdoor sound because it's in the floors we actually had to take some styrofoam and some paper around the cup to make that same soil type like somebody sound. thought of that oh, we, oh that's awesome look we it's get down so to the very right, nitty gritty right, wow, yeah. wow. Yeah. okay so yeah. funny so, so but, but yeah please. yeah so basically the show um was obviously design focused but very much playing into the audience that i have a style driven woman who you know she may not have the time anymore she is interested in fashion and style she wants to elevate herself and push herself further and she trusts me to give her you know the right direction and not give her 50% further then you lose trust but give her 10% further than she is and open her up to new ideas so the way that we really thought about partnering with Bazaar um, and you know if we're talking brand Bazaar is the brand coming to me as the influencer to work with them on this series was to really integrate brands and product organically and authentically into the show. So rather than take a picture of a Sony TV and put it on my Instagram saying, I love Sony, which is <laughs> one way that some influencers incorporate brands, we basically built a whole content series that every single thing in the show was um, product placement in a really authentic and organic way. And it wasn't like, and this Ethan Allen. Right, well to, well, well, to back up a second, we actually came up with what we wanted to do first. In other words, we didn't say, oh, we want to use Ethan Allen. We said, he, Aaliyah came up with the vision yeah. of what the, the end- putting green. Yeah, what right. the end product the, was going to look like, the putting, putting green. green floor, the putting yeah. green room, and how she wanted to stylistically do it. Then with that vision in mind, she then sort went, of worked backwards yeah, she worked into backwards. the brands, right? Into right. the. Content. I actually think that's a really important point. I, yeah, I do too. Um, I think people make the mistake right. of pitching a brand first because they want to make money, rather than being authentic, coming up with a really clear and concise vision, right? And then going to them and pitching them the vision, yeah. then they can buy into it, and then they can buy into you authentically sure. doing it. Sure. I think I think a lot of these companies get pitched a million things a day but they're being pitched to either make money or give free product. When you're pitching them a vision of a completed process that they're a part of organically, they're much more apt to do it. Well, particularly when it, when it ties in, again, kind of coming back to the, this micro-influencer theme today, when it ties into um, that vision is the vision of your brand and your community right. and your following and right. 
to a certain extent, a brand does have to give up a little bit of control when they work with a micro-influencer, you know, and there's a lot of brands that have really struggled to become social brands because they're very rigid on what they see themselves as. And anytime you work with a a person, they have their point of view. The reason you're a micro-influencer and you have a following is because you have a point of view, you have a style, you have an aesthetic. You can't just sell that out. Things you like. Exactly. So if I'm partnering with Ethan Allen, I need to do Ethan Allen in my way. Right versus Ethan Allen's way. And if I did it in Ethan Allen's way, which I've had to have this conversation with many brands, you wouldn't like the outcome because you're coming to me because I have a following that likes my style and my aesthetic, and that's what they expect from me. So if I did something that was off-brand for me but on-brand for you, they would see right through it. Yeah. It also wouldn't be of any value. Right. It wouldn't be of any value. What do you you bring to the table? Right. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Um, And that campaign went well? You got great results? We did, actually. So, you know, it's interesting because uh, Hearst is also, like many media companies, really trying a lot of new experimentation and original content as, you know, we see Amazon and Netflix and all of these other big media companies doing really well with scripted and unscripted series. So this was really their first foray into an unscripted series with a micro-influencer in the design space. So it was very much a question mark as to, you know, if their audience who's very beauty and fashion oriented, if there'd be a crossover. I mean, the assumption is yes, because when we think about style, we think about all of those things, you know, really having a lot of um, crossover, but, you know, you never know. So when we, it ran the summer and there was really no benchmark against how to measure it, but what media companies really do look at is retention rate. How long was somebody watching a video? And it has one of the highest retention rates they've had in any type of content. It's over five minutes, which basically means that once someone started watching it and they committed to it, they watch it till the end, which um, for a brand is gold because if people fall off, they've lost part of your message. So this basically means that the audience was really interested in the content, interested in um, the, the tips and ideas we had. And then there was also sales from, there's a shoppable gallery on site, so you can track that. So there's a lot of metrics that brands can use to track how these more innovative um, partnerships are working. And I do have to say, I think we're just at the beginning of seeing um, more interesting and less obvious partnerships between brands and micro-influencers. I think there's very easy ways to do it. Like we're saying, we give you product, you put it on your Instagram. But creating video and content and creating another reason and experience around a person that you can seamlessly put your product into so it feels holistic it feels lifestyle i mean that's what people are buying into they're buying your shirt because they like you they're, but then they want to see like well what are you eating for lunch where are you going on vacation soul angeles by the way that's right i was about to say uh, i mean alan's got a just great, got a little great t-shirt free. he does got a great great t-shirt on i mean it's got the blazers rocking the look and you know what that's what people want to know i mean that's but they want to buy into your life 100 so, so just to like cap yeah. that off if a brand, as we see these collaborations with micro-influencers and brands, I think it's going to be more about how does a brand get into the experience of that person authentically and seamlessly because that audience, they want the experience and the lifestyle of that micro-influencer. So it's a more organic way to present yourself as a brand. It, it was very cool. I mean, just to go back to my sporting good, um, PXG, uh, which is owned by um, uh, Bob Parsons of GoDaddy fame, Okay. So he started his own golf company, PXG, you know, Bob Parsons at Extreme Golf. And he did an amazing job hiring micro-influencers along with a couple tour players. Okay. So he went after a couple, a woman, Paige Renee, and Paige Renee had a ton of followers. Okay. Rather than go out and hire another, another professional golfer, he hired a female style golf blogger who's a golfer and she's become her own celebrity. Okay. So... You can see the Mavericks. I mean, Bob Parsons is going to do exactly what he wants to do. He's a brilliant guy and a really great guy. Um, He's going to do what he wants to do, and he's always ahead of the curve. And when I saw him do that, and it's funny, you know, a lot of the other companies are trying to follow suit, but they don't really, they they don't like to break with their paradigm of what they usually call the um, pyramid of influence, especially in sports. They go, best player in the league if we can get them then to kind of go down from there. And that, that pyramid also would then go to like a, a, like a, a golf professional, your local golf course, okay? That's flipped completely upside down 
because people are, like we said, are walking around with connected phones. And so Paige Renee, who could be in Arizona, can be connecting with somebody in, in Maine that day. And so I think really PXG has done a great job in that particular sector of flipping models upside down. And, you know, they're, they're not only a company to watch in sports, he's the kind of person that disrupts entire industries, which I mm-hmm. think those are the kinds of people that we're attracted to. Mm-hmm. Are people making a living as micro-influencers? Today. Oh my gosh, very much. I mean, like something Navy example, she's obviously not a micro-influencer. She has 1.1 million followers. But um, micro-influencers, yes. Because like the 30, 40,000. Yes. More and more brands are offering, like, for example, we have a client who owns um, the spa in Foxwoods, or she has a deal with the spa in Foxwoods, and she wants to do an influencer event. And so basically the package that we're offering, we're going to have 10 micro-influencers come for an entire weekend experience, which is a package valued at over $5,000 that they would get for free in exchange for coming on the experience, doing Instagram stories, doing Instagram posts. But a lot of what they're getting now... um, there is some payment, but a lot of his experiences, travel, um, dinners, hotel stays. I mean, people want you to come and experience their brand. So that's where a lot of the invites are going right now for micro-influencers. By the way, every one of those people is just like 5000 So I guess I got to pay tax on that. Really, I wish you hadn't said that. <laughs> um, sort of starting to maybe, you know, kind of wrap up but I, I what I what I'd love to hear from you guys is where do you think this is going and, and where are you thinking you know in terms of we, we talked a little bit about video being um, you know where, where you can innovate but but what do you think's next here you know what what will we be talking about in 2019 do you think in terms of influencer marketing and micro influencer marketing I think a lot of it's going to depend upon some of the uh, so you know some of the platforms you know, platforms have been at the the cutting edge of innovation. That's a good point. And so yeah. I think a lot of the uh, a lot of the video apps that we see that work with Instagram and Facebook. You know, a lot of this quick cut. Um, I mean, even what we're doing right now would be unheard of ten years ago. Right. So I mean, the I quality think- of production that you guys are doing right here. Uh, so I, I think a lot of it is, is some of it's technology based. So you have to kind of like keep your ear to the ground on what's going on. And you know, I think ultimately it's going to become more and more specific. So what I see, at least in my, in my mind, and what I see out there when, I'm, you know, when we're doing our research is it used to be brands were like head to toe, right? Just in terms of, if you, let's just take fashion for a second. They were head to toe. Now somebody's like, I'm going to make the best workout short in the world. Right. It's gotten much more niche. Much more niche. So I, From the brand perspective. Yes. But I, I also I, think from the micro-influencer perspective, right. you see whole Instagrams just on you know the quality of a burger and <laughs> right. they have you know and everyone that loves burgers follows the burger guy you're the burger guy you're the shorts guy you're the you know magnolia flower girl you're the so i think these like very specific interests and passions um from a micro influencer perspective and perceived expertise right exactly because, well exactly when you're right. that Micro. Right. Yeah, right. Right. exactly. You, there's probably not a lot of competition, which is if you're talking about being a micro-influencer and how do I build my brand, build it in a space that everyone else doesn't live in. So it's very hard, we were talking about this yesterday, to sell a lifestyle, like to sell Aaliyah because Aaliyah is multifaceted. There's so many things happening. It's hard for a brand to look at it and be like, you do what exactly? So as more and more micro-influencers get smart about building a business and making a business out of it, it's like, what can I be the best and the most differentiated at, which is perceived expertise. So they become the go-to person for X. I think it's like get smaller to be bigger. Yeah. Yeah. For example, the uh, Mr. Bags, we were just talking about that. There's an influencer. He's like the third largest influencer in China. He, um, by the way, we have to plug Vice News on that. Vice News did, they did an incredible job. (laughs) They do. They do a great job. It's very funny. They they do a great job and a great story that opened up, you know, our, our, at least our awareness of what they were doing over there on WeChat and Mr. Bags is it's like and it's an incredible story and people need to know it. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Yeah. So no, basically he um, has 3.5 million followers and he started to go. He now has the cachet just in luxury handbags. That is all he talks <laughs> about and cares about luxury handbags to go directly to brands and they are designing. He's opening his shop 
Um, they're designing exclusive bags just for him to sell, which is sort of unheard of. We're talking about like Fendi, Givenchy, um, Gucci, like luxury. Are, are, they, are these co-branded or are these exclusive yes, collections? Exclusive, exclusive collections, collections that are usually sold out him. in less than 30 minutes. Oh, I think, yeah. In, no, 12, 12 minutes. He 12 sold, minutes. His first collaboration was with Givenchy. He sold $1.2 million in 12 minutes on WeChat in China. So, you know, as micro-influencers can, I think, like you said, get smaller to get bigger, as they grow into actual influencers, there's real business to be had. And I think brands are, are really shifting marketing spend there because they're seeing much bigger results. Do you think that micro-influencers will somehow get more and more leverage vis-a-vis the brands? Yes. Yeah. Yes. I think brands, especially in fashion and retail, they're struggling. They are looking for a lifeline. They're looking for connectivity. They're looking for new distribution channels. And they're not, um, traditional marketing teams aren't well-versed in, well, we should create a show and have us integrated in it. So a lot of the things we're pitching, it's still early days. People are like, what are you talking about? Do the big agencies have any, are the big agencies sort of frozen out of this whole micro-influencer economy? like the big holding company agencies, or are, they, or is there a role for them? You know, you have these micro-influencer agencies, you have micro-influencers the, that are their own free agents. Right. I think There's the, a huge amount of brand dollars going in. Are they, are they big agencies? Do they, are they getting any of this? They are, but they're very aware of it. It's just, look, the bigger you are, the slower you are. Yeah, they're not as nimble. Right, they're not as nimble as, as, as smaller specific companies that just do that. Um, and I also think there's so many people at the table, like Jamie and I are very direct with our clients. I mean, we are willing to lose a client if you don't think that this is the right path because we don't want to appease you and not be successful and well, I think, impactful. I think, well, us taking an equity piece makes us a little bit more partners as opposed to... Sure. And we don't take... No, it's not... But, a, but we are very right. direct. Unlike yeah. most agencies, it's not... They want the business so bad that right. they're like, you, you know, we're going to put together a great deck for you. We start up front saying like, here's our point of view. We may not be your point of view. You may not be ready or it just doesn't align. And that's okay with us. You know, that's why being small is great yeah. for right. us. Right. I think that's the difference between the big agencies. Is my, my, there still is some traditional methods that are right. that are happening because they're almost like service businesses. But, you know, their, their, bill, their billings are going down right. significantly yeah. because so many dollars are shifting. You know, one of the big holding companies, literally their billings this year are half what they were last year. I've well, why would you want... there and he, it's, Alan, why would it's a little bit of a, uh, of a um, kind of a, uh, an annihilation right. going on. I don't know if it's... Com- directly tied to this? But, it, some uh, of it is, but I mean, think about it just from a value point. I mean, we've all run businesses, right? Real businesses. So if someone came to you and said, 15% of your spend goes to just essentially profit and overhead rather than taking a budget and getting a more specific target. Right. The logic train to brands, okay, is is there already. That's why you see the publicly traded companies, and that's why you see their revenues going directly down because you, especially publicly traded, you have to answer to your earnings every quarter, okay? And the efficiency in which that media is being placed right now doesn't work yeah. anymore. So it's really about efficiency and ROI. You know, it'll be interesting, and this, this is maybe a good place to wrap up, it will be interesting to see on the technology side what happens with these platforms privacy issues and so mm-hmm. on and so forth because you know historically the mm-hmm. data has been totally transparent the api has mm-hmm. been open that's starting to change and, and we'll see how that transforms but i would i would love to have you guys back at some point um, to talk about how this space innovates and and the changes that uh kind of that we see over the next six and 12 months this video video and video, I, video. And, I, and i would love to know how many t-shirts you sell yeah <laughs> I should have my own branded t-shirt. That's so right. That, yes, that is should. what yes. I should do. My yes. own gravy yes. t-shirt. You are a micro-influencer. Well, not yet, but uh, <laughs> more, more, more offline. On that. Uh, thanks, guys, so much Thank for coming you. in. Thanks, Alan. Thank you so thanks much, Alan. Thank you, Alan. Appreciate it. My pleasure. That's a wrap on this episode of The Medium Rules with Alan Baldishin. For more information, go to our website at www.hballp.com. And you can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts.